today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. This weekend was the Ontario PC uh, Convention uh, where not just Doug Ford but Andrew Scheer spoke uh, and talked about party politics. Let's bring in Barry Kay, political science professor, Wilfrid Laurier University. He is with us now. Barry, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Hello, Scott. So unusual to see a um, uh, the leader of the federal conservatives at the provincial convention. Well, it's not the typical, um, but we've got a federal election coming up in a year. Ontario's absolutely pivotal in terms of how the election is going to ultimately come out. Again, it's about 11 months away, so it's not like it's around the corner. But I think the timing of the federal election had a lot to do with Shear's appearance. Uh, who's using who here? Who is who, who has most to gain? Is it good for both? Oh, I don't know. Politics is fairly symbiotic anyway, in the sense that people use each other. Um, uh, clearly, Scheer uh, wanted to get as much attention uh, from Ontario. The fact that the Conservatives, although I, I noticed that the, the first polling I've seen uh, about the provincial government since the election shows that the uh, Conservatives aren't doing as well as they had in the election itself. They still have a slight lead. The Liberals are back, actually, but that's just one poll, and indeed I'm not sure uh, that we can generalize from it. Nonetheless, like the Conservative strategy is they've got a shiny new government, they think, in the provincial level. They've got an election coming up. Uh, they've got issues, particularly the carbon tax, that they want to um, try to, to mobilize the public as much as possible, and a lot of other provincial premiers, including in addition to Ford, are doing it. Uh, so it was an opportunity to make a splash. Um, my hunch is that it was probably more important for Shear than it was for Ford because, in fact, it's the federal election that's coming up next. But it never hurts to have some kind of display of party unity. Uh, purpose of these conventions at this point? Oh, I don't look. The, they're kind of cheer, cheerleading sessions for the, the, the party members as much as anything. The party members do have an opportunity to express themselves on issues. They had some squabbles about uh, you know the wording of different issues. We may talk about that in a minute. Um, but it's really just a way of kind of touching base with the, not just so much the base, but the party activists. These are the people that, that uh, you know, do the drudge work during the election that knock on doors and, uh, you know, uh, camp, campaign for money and put up signs and so forth. I think as much as anything for each of the parties, it's this sort of thing. It does give an opportunity of renewal. It does allow the elites, the, uh, the, the elected officials to be in touch with the party base. I'm not sure it's always constructive, and I don't think all of the things the party base was doing at the um, convention this time are necessarily helpful for the party. But it's really, um, it's, it's kind of more for um, mobilizing morale within the party, getting people that are party activists feeling that they really are connected and they are listened to. And I, I think it's as, that as much as anything in general, uh, the fact that there's a, again, a federal election coming up in the next year makes the timing of it a little more relevant uh, with that particular uh, perspective in view. Uh, lots of noise being made today about the, uh, uh, um, I guess, proposal to debate gender uh, identity at this uh, past convention. Talk about that. Is this too inside politics? Is this typical of what happens at these sorts of things? Put it all in perspective for um, us. I don't think it's an, it's an issue that probably a lot of people, not all, but a lot of people in the base are enthused about. Uh, there's a whole bunch. We're getting into the social conservative part of the party. Um, I don't know that they're a majority of the party. There's certainly a significant element, uh, even if they're just a minority of the party. Uh, They have other agenda issues than just this. Um, Clearly, abortion is something that many of them feel very strongly about. We certainly remember that Tanya uh, Granik-Allen, who who was a a participant in the leadership uh, convention back in March, uh, this was very much her agenda. And uh, 
her her support may have been pivotal in in allowing Ford to become the leader. I don't think Ford is especially a social conservative. I think he's much more a pragmatist in terms of how he operates. Nonetheless, he benefited, remembering that he didn't even really win the popular vote, although it was very close, uh, that he narrowly lost. It was just the electoral system that allowed him to ultimately become the leader. But in the, at that time, back in March, I think uh, the support of Tanya Allen and the um, social conservatives was critical, so we can't totally ignore them. Um, and that's why um, they got as much attention as they did. That said, um, the in general, the social conservative policy position is not a winning strategy, certainly not in a province like Ontario. No. If we remember uh, back when, um, when Stephen Harper... Now, Stephen Harper, I think, is much more from, as best I can tell, I don't want to sort of read into people's personal religious values too much, but um, Stephen Harper was, in fact, a much more of a committed evangelical, and I su- suspect much more committed to a pro-life position generally than Ford is. Nonetheless, he came to understand that, in fact, if the federal conservative party was going to be successful nationally, which they were uh, during his his tenure, that, in fact, they could not push the, the pro-life agenda very far, certainly not with regard to abortion. So if somebody who's actually committed to the principle personally uh, was not prepared to push social conservatism, it doesn't seem to me that it's a winner for Ford either, certainly not in a province like Ontario. Ontario is too cosmopolitan, too urban, too metropolitan. That's not to suggest there aren't plenty of people in the province who I'm sure hold pro-life and um, social conservative positions. But I think there are more people that are taken aback by it, perhaps offended by it, yeah. than there are that are supportive of it. And that's why Ford probably had to handle it very carefully. Um, and there was some debate about whether I think some of the social conservative element, from what I remember, were being critical of the fact that they weren't being allowed to fully present the, the full agenda that they want. They were able to talk about uh, gender identity, which perhaps is a little vaguer concept anyways. It sort of fits into the um, the sex education program, which Ford has suggested that that's, that's going to be reviewed. Um, and I, that probably isn't going to antagonize middle-of-the-road electorate as much as abortion might. But I think they allowed that one to go forward largely because they wanted to throw a bone to the people on the right wing of the party. But um, if the Conservative Party ever allowed itself to move too far ideologically to the right on social conservative issues, I think they would very much find themselves behind the eight ball. And I think that's, you know, and again, I cite not my views or the views of others, but the fact that Stephen Harper made that calculation. Um, federally. Now, again, there's parts of the province, there's probably parts of, the, of um, both the country and the province where um, social conservative views predominate, particularly in rural areas. But those are more or less in decline. There's fewer people in those areas than there mm-hmm. are in the big cities, and it is not a winner in the GTA, and it's not a winner in Hamilton, it's not a, a winner in the big urban centers. And that was kind of the fine line that I guess Ford was trying to be mindful of in allowing a little bit of a discussion of the social conservative agenda without going full bore would it not make more sense at this point for the PCs to move closer to the center, considering how far left Kathleen Wynne took the Liberals? I mean, now that they're in, would it make more sense just to pull back and go more towards the center? I, I think that's true generally of most uh, pol- yeah. parties when they're in government. Again, parties of the left and the right. I think there are there tend to be more people in the center. Sometimes the center gets redefined, and p- the public opinion can change on different issues at times. Uh, but to me, uh, the winning strategy is in the middle. But again, going back to why having a c- convention at all, it's kind of to juice up the enthusiasm of the supporters, to keep them interested in supporting the party, particularly as they are going to be reminded again to sort of get out and help out uh, in you know, next, next fall with a federal election. 
So um, in terms, and, and remembering the next provincial election is almost three and a half years away. It won't be until the uh, the, uh, the summer, I guess, of uh, 2022, um, uh, I guess it would be. Um, and that indeed um, people are probably at the provincial level not going to remember so much the kinds of agenda items that are being passed now. And frankly, the agenda that, that, that are the kind of recommendations, the policy recommendations that come out of these meetings aren't binding on the government anyway. They can do pretty much what they want and will do. I don't think this is going to go very far. But we do see that Ford has committed himself to at least reviewing uh, sex education provisions within the province. I think he, he's going to run into some resistance on that. That's perhaps a story for another day, um, indeed, because I don't think the, uh, the teachers are particularly happy about that. I'm not sure that all the students are either, but nonetheless... Um, the resolutions that come out of the, you know, this, this recent uh, conference uh, is not likely going to resonate a whole lot three and a half years from now. But the idea of allowing people who feel strongly within the party that they are at least being listened to, even if they don't necessarily predominate with regard to the ultimate policy agenda and platform, uh, that, 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 that's the kind of fine line that, uh, that Ford was probably walking in dealing with this. Barry, you mentioned that the, mini, the the winning strategy was in the middle. Why don't we see that in politics? I mean, it seems now that we're living in a world of extremes. Do parties realize, or will they for the next election, that that's where the majority of votes are? Uh, well, in general, uh, look, and things can change. I, I Frankly, Canada's not as bad as most places, and Ontario's not as bad as most places with regard to political extremes. Yet. Uh, what's going on south of the border, and what, frankly, what's going on in a good deal of Europe um, I think is very extremist, and people are very fearful, and people are very angry about all sorts of things. Uh, the kinds of people that get active in politics and get elected tend to be much more ideological than the general population. And indeed, rationality to me suggests that indeed they should not be taking positions that are unduly controversial. As I think a um, now again, this wasn't necessarily a pro-life agenda. This was a social conservative agenda, and those things aren't exactly the same, although they're similar. Uh, but that uh, that. This was something that um, um, the activists within the party, or at least a significant number of them, and I'm not even sure it's a majority opinion within the conservative um, you know, party establishment, but that uh, there are enough people within the party who felt strongly enough about this. And in general, politicians tend to be ideological, both on the left and the right, perhaps less so in the case of the Liberal Party. It's certainly true that Kathleen Wynne moved to the left side of her party. The Liberals traditionally have been more of a... Um, a brokerage party that's kind of, you know, moved with the wind left and right, and that's why they've been so successful for so long. The, I think when the NDPs had a position to be in power, they frequently are tempted to go too far to the left as well, away from the center, because that's what their political base is concerned about. But the kinds of people, whether they're voting NDP, or as a lot of people did in the provincial election, but not enough to get them in government, um, or, or to the right, uh, the kinds of people that are in government tend to be much more ideological than the people that are voting for them. What does, we were talking about Andrew Scheer and him, obviously, uh, and I guess both using each other, meaning Doug Ford, to, to promote themselves. What does, what does Andrew Scheer need to do moving forward in the next year for uh, the federal election? Obviously, his personality is nothing like Justin Trudeau's. Uh, he certainly seems a lot more reserved. Uh, than Justin Trudeau does. What does he do? And, and, and I'm sure him here with, with Ford is, is all part of 
that process of bringing in, bringing him out and and getting people to um, getting uh, people to used to him and who he is and what he's all about. What does he need to do moving forward in order to make an impact? In order uh, to resonate, well, Shear's personality again. Part of the reason I think he won was he wasn't everybody's most people's first choice, but he was the second and third choice of a lot of people. Right. He was agreeable. He wasn't contentious within the party. People found him acceptable, so he was a kind of consensus figure. Um, I don't think he's ever going to be seen as a particularly charismatic figure that's going to excite dramatic enthusiasm among the electorate. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that's his calling card. I think where he's got to go is basically try as best he can to discredit um, Trudeau with regard to the level of competence and the fact that uh, Trudeau's agenda may, he'll he'll try to portray uh, Trudeau as being too extreme on the environment, perhaps, um, with regard to immigration. I'm not, I, I, he's kind of been careful with that one, and I'm not sure that's a winning strategy in Ontario either. But there are certainly elements with, on the political right who feel that the, are, the Canada is too open to immigration and to refugees, um, and particularly as people have started to come across the border from the south in greater numbers. Whether it's the, I don't want to make it sound like the election is going to be just about immigration. I don't think it is. But I think the strategy is probably to suggest that the liberals are not getting it done, that we do not have a particularly competent administration. One of the knocks on Trudeau back in the old days, it didn't really work in the last federal election, uh, was that he just wasn't ready, uh, that he remembered that ad that suggested yeah, he had nice yeah. air, that he's kind of a lightweight. Um, and that, indeed, I think that could resonate to some degree. I'm not sure that Sheer is that much of a heavyweight either. But if he can, um, I've, an adage I frequently quote in interviews like this is that uh, governments are defeated, not elected. That, in fact, if he can create a sense of uncertainty and doubt about Trudeau's competence, um, the fact is that maybe he doesn't have to talk about exactly what he's going to do so much as to suggest that uh, the Trudeau doesn't have it and should be replaced. The success of Ford provincially, I think, had less to do with Ford's agenda. In fact, he would never even talk about where the money was coming from, for, you know, where he was going to cut efficiencies to allow people to cut taxes and so forth. He never talked about that. He didn't talk about so much about what he was going to do. He, he t- talked about general, general themes he was going to work for the people. Uh, I think sheer strategy probably is to, if he can sow enough doubt about Trudeau and the liberals, he may not have to fill in all the blanks of just what it is he's going to do. I'm not sure it's going to work. The polls right now actually show that the liberals are ahead. Um, we just did a recent seat projection at lizpop.ca that people can access. This is based on relatively small number of polls, and we're not going to have any really great data, I'm sure, until next summer. But um, based on the polls that, uh, that have been out in the last month or so, uh, we have the, the Liberals still in majority government territory. Uh, the, um, the Conservatives, I guess, potentially could, could um, create a circumstance where they might do well enough in Ontario to deny them the majority. But the Conservatives are well behind at the moment as best we can judge. Now, again, I don't want uh, people to bet a lot of money on all of that because the world can change in the next 11 months. But at the moment, right now, it, the Liberals are ahead. Scheer's goal is to try to you know, create as much doubt and uncertainty about Trudeau's competence as he can. Uh, the um, carbon tax is certainly one of the areas where he's, he's trying to do it. Barry Kay, political science professor, Wilfrid Laurier University. Barry, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
one third of cannabis buyers still using illicit dealers. That's according to a new Ipsos poll. One of the Canadian government's chief aims in legalizing marijuana was to eliminate the black market. And yet one month after legalization came into effect, a new Ipsos poll conducted on behalf of Global uh, Global News reveals that those who have purchased cannabis in the last month, 35% went back to their pre-legalization sources. In other words, they skipped illegal avenues in favor of their old dealer. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Dan Malik, health sciences professor, Brock University, author of Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition Ontario. He is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and you? I'm all right. Surprised by these numbers from Ipsos? Not really. Uh, if you think that, if you consider that um, the market that they're trying to undermine um, was you know, a robust uh, market uh, network of people selling and buying, uh, and the market that they legalized, or the, um, the the vendors they legalized, the manufacturers they legalized, certainly didn't have the numbers that the uh, illegal market had. I'm not surprised at all of it, um, because they went mostly with licensed producers who were already doing medical marijuana, and it takes some time to, you know, to um, to grow the stuff and and to expand facilities and that. It was inevitable that that people would continue to use their their um, old sources, uh, especially with given the um, supply management issues. I, I've talked to those that are uh, involved in the crusade to stop uh, contraband tobacco, and they've they've often quoted that uh, the numbers as high as a third that are buying contraband cigarettes mm. uh, in Ontario. What do you think about the comparison of those two stats? Uh, yeah, I, I, it might just be a coincidence that it's a third and and and, and two thirds. Um, uh, it just seems that one's yeah. been around longer than the other one has. It's it's you know if 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 you, as far as the uh, the cannabis is is concerned, yeah. if you're at that level now, just starting out, wouldn't you be pretty happy with that? Uh, you mean if you were a, a um, you mean as far as the government goes? Or? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I think so. Although, um, as you noted, and, and as a number of people have noted. Um, the government's plan was to undermine the black market. The problem is that there's just—I mean, it's still a mar- there's still a market, right? I mean, yeah. when you deal with market forces, you have to have supply, and if you don't have supply, people are—if they want it, they're going to go somewhere else. Um, and I think the last time we spoke, we talked about whether um, um, the black market um, sellers would increase their prices, and it seems they have, recognizing that they have. Uh, kind of a lock on a lot of the uh, a lot of the product, and a lot of them are running out as well. Right? Uh, will legalization do what the government wants it to do, and that is keep it out of the hands of kids, get rid of the black market, or is it just catering to a new generation of smokers to catch the next ones? Uh, I don't think it's the last part. I think that there, that this legalization has the potential to do exactly what the intention is, um, but what is needed is. Uh, you know, enforcement of the laws and um, a better recognition of this as a market in a legal product, right? So even the the new rules that the Ontario government released last week keeps uh, limits the uh, number of stores a licensed producer can use, for example, or can have, I think, to one, um, and and has a lot of restrictions that um, make it more difficult to be um, a uh, to 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 work in that market, and one of the things uh, I was sort of digging around on what was happening in 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 Colorado recently, and there were relatively 
limited rules, limited restrictions on who could sell, uh, limited restrictions on the number of licensed producers that can have stores, the number of stores they can have, and things like that. And the Colorado market has is remarkably more robust. Now, it's a couple of years down the line, but it certainly didn't seem to have a lot of the hiccups that we're seeing in Canada, especially in Ontario. Uh, did government jump on this too soon? I don't think so. I think maybe, I think what happened was they were too cautious in the sense that they decided that the only producers would be the existing licensed producers who have already shown the ability to jump through all of the many hoops that Health Canada had set up. Um, and even with the, um, from what was it, it was from about July 2017, or there was, I can't remember when the law was first passed, but there were a number of months between um, the law being passed and, and uh, legalization happening that uh, it just wasn't enough time for those licensed producers to expand. And it's it's kind of, because the government was so concerned about uh, a lot of the the regulatory issues, they um, they locked out a lot of the producers who were already producing product that that the the um, that the, the purchasers wanted and trusted and uh, uh, and and so that market was still there. They didn't manage to harness that market and make it legal. They just created a legal market, sort of running parallel to this or parallel to a, a smaller black market. So has this helped the black market legalization? In the, in the short term, absolutely. Um, people are who, especially with the, the media coverage of the, the problems with um, distribution, I mean, in Quebec, the stores are open three days a week, and in Ontario, there are lags. They were saying, what, one to three days, and then three to five days, and I was speaking to someone who it took two weeks to receive their product, right? So, um, so it certainly helped the black market um, vendors who could fill in that gap, right? Um, between the even those two weeks where that person was waiting, they I didn't ask them if they went to their their guy, quote unquote, but um, probably a lot of people did. So it it allows that those folks to continue to thrive and possibly increase their prices or at least show that they're a more reliable source. And what will be necessary now is for the governments, the, the governments, I pluralize because it's the provincial governments, to to um, uh, increase their supply. And I think the federal government has to loosen the rules on who can become a licensed producer so that there is enough, there, there are enough product, there's enough stuff out there for people to buy legally. If there was a black market uh, uh, in place already, why would there be a shortage just because it's made legal unless there's new people purchasing it through the legal means? Um, I'm not sure. It may be that some of the black. Do you mean because? Uh, well, I mean, you know, prior a, to prior to late to, to legalization, yeah. people just got it from the black market. Yeah. Now all of a sudden, it's legalized, so it's available from the black market, or if you want to, you know, through the postal service and online or whatever they're doing now. Yeah. Uh, so you can see government supply mm-hmm. certainly running out because they didn't have uh, the growers in place and right. the product in place for all of this. But at the end of the day, why is why would the black market be uh, having a shortage if everyone there just continues the same way anyway? Unless you, all of a sudden you're what are all of a sudden people who have never been involved before going, hey, well, I got to find a guy. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it could be that it could. Be, I, I I don't know, but I can offer some some I guess informed guesses. It could be 
more people, say, crossing the border to try to get to, to buy legally, um, although it wouldn't have been happening in the West Coast because BC and Washington State are across from each other. Do you think that um, that's going to make much of a dent, no, though, no. Dan, at the end of the day, simply because, geez, you no, got to ta- so. take it back across. Good yeah. luck with that. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's the main thing. There's also, I would imagine that the, the, produ- the number of producers um, declined uh, with legalization, some of them getting out of it thinking that it's not going to be lucrative, some of them getting into the legal business, you know, being hired by these right. licensed vendors. I mean, these are people who understand cannabis horticulture, right? So it would be, it would make sense for the licensed producers to hire them, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I, and I don't know, but I'm guessing that that, that um, supply has shrunk because the number of producers has been diminished. And remember that the, the Cannabis Act, the federal act, increased a lot of the penalties for illegal uh, selling and I think illegal production. So it, some people would have balked it, or not balked at that, but some people would have yeah. taken that under mm-hmm. advisement and, and, and stopped doing it, right? So that's probably what happened. I mean, there's, yeah, and some people aren't going to be selling because they know that it's illegal in some of the places, especially in Ontario, where they say anyone who was, had a, a storefront after October 17th will never be able to get a license um, to sell legally. That meant that there were there were fewer points illegal points of purchase once uh distribution is uh, private distribution is legal here in april april 1st mm-hmm. um what do you think is going to happen to those gray area places now i guess it's not gray they're illegal yeah i'm i'm uh, i imagine most of them will be gone by then there certainly has been an increased uh, enforcement um uh, going on uh, against those folks um, and I, I would guess that by April, the, a lot of the supply issues are going to have been worked out. Um, it's enough time, I think, for another crop, right? So at least one more crop. So, so some of the places that are expanding, uh, especially around here, um, you know, expanding their facilities will have, have expanded. So we might see a more opportunity for the legal market to take, um, take, the, space, the, take the place of the black market. Uh, won't the black market just do it cheaper? It might, but remember, as an illegal product, they have certain costs embedded in that, um, be it from security, from various ways they distribute their product. Um, and it, and the, the, the whole point of legalization is to undermine not just in price but in convenience, right? So, um, and, and this is what we saw. One of the reasons all of these licensed, um, all of these legal um, stores are empty is be, is because people were willing to go to those stores, right, and willing to put up maybe with the lines and maybe with a slightly higher price to get a legal product. Um, so there's more than just price involved here. It's also about people's willingness to actually follow the law, interestingly enough. Hmm. With private distribution, how are they going to keep costs similar? I mean, again, will this, just like with the liquor stores and beer stores, this will all have to be bought through the same outlet anyway, correct? Yeah. These are just, you know, like beer stores and liquor store extensions. You know, yeah. You know, I don't, I, I can't remember off the top of my head if, if there are sort of uh, price caps or price um, floors on these, um, on the products from the vendor, but, um, or from the, uh, from the wholesale, right, from the government. Um, but that's, that's how they'll have to keep it um, sort of competitive and, uh, and uh, also there's the um, the the fact that, that you know some some places will have more stores and so they'll have the 
the ability to buy in bulk purchases and stuff like that. Will this be more difficult than managing the sale of beer and alcohol or alcohol? I think so. Um, I, I, the, there are a lot more regulations and controls on the product itself um, all the way through. I mean, in, even in sort of distilling, there's uh, certain excise rules and inspection and stuff like that. But uh, even, even the, the medical marijuana, well, the medical marijuana market and the medical mar- marijuana producers found that Health Canada had a lot of rules and they were constantly changing. So, so it, it's, it's more, it, it, there's more control and there's more sort of scrutiny of the, the product, especially since it's a, an agricultural product and there was, were concerns about things like um, pesticides and stuff like that. So there are a lot of sort of certifications and, and um, uh, inspections and things like that. Uh, what do you think it's going to be like come April 1st? How uh, will it be as confusing and uh, as many blips in the road as there have been with where we are now come, uh, you know, with October 17? I doubt it. Um, as I said earlier, the there will be more time to build supply um, and there will be um, there will be more points of purchase, right? So people won't be relying on Ontario Cannabis Store and its extremely limited supply and limited choice as well. Um, so we'll see. It's going to take a few years for this to work out. And unfortunately for the Liberals, there's going to be an election next year. So if there continue to be a lot of hitches, it might be a, a, an ongoing problem, which may be why the Tories decided in Ontario to, to wait until April um, to open these stores. Uh, but um, but it, 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 just, it just takes time. I mean, we're still in the few months of it first few months. Um, what I think is one of the most fascinating parts of this, though, is that people have been very willing to go le- through the legal and sort of normal channels to complain about what's going on, right? So we hear the ombuds complaints and stuff like that. It's like people have internalized the sense that this is my right and this is, this is a legal product and I deserve to get it as a consumer as opposed to just going back to their legal or their illegal source, right? They are using these legal channels. So it, it suggests to me that it's just a matter of time before it becomes a relatively normalized. Uh, How will the retail experience be after April 1st? Um, will all, because they're privately run stores, will everything be different? I mean, we, will we go into a liquor store or a beer store now? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it has a look, it has a feel, it has this, it is that. I mean, what's going to set these different places apart? Uh, I, I guess, I'm guessing that they're going to, you know, there's going to be an individualization of, of companies. Like, what is their angle? Who is their market? Um, it may, it, I don't think it's all going to be, and we see this with some private liquor stores in different provinces where each one has its own angle, it has its own sort of um, cachet, right? Um, so it may be that some are going for a certain counterculture experience, some are going for more respectability, it's just, and that'll come down to the look they choose. But won't the government have uh, restrictions, yeah. guidelines on all of that too? I mean, like, all, like already the, you, you can't go into a store unless you're 19 years of age, yeah. which I'm sure most Ontarians would probably be happy with. Um, but again, like at the end of the day, are these going to be privately run facilities that all basically look the same? I, I doubt it because um, that's uh, this. Is I'm just not sure what the incentive is to be yeah. different. What's going to? I guess there's the question there. What's going to? What's going to separate these? What's going to make one uh, different from the other? Well, probably the incentive would be to 
appeal to the consumer walking through the door that um, they're going to get, say, better advice, um, more reliable product. But it will be all the same product with all the same price, though, won't it? Won't it? I don't know about price, possibly, but it it's... Because I'm thinking like alcohol, you know, it's the same thing with beer in the grocery stores. It's, yeah, you can buy it in the grocery store, but you're not getting any advantage over buying it in the beer store other than it's next to your grilled cheese. Or yeah, your cheese. yeah. And in that case, you're also going to see the, the issue of location, right, and, um, and convenience. Um, and I, I think that companies are going to differentiate themselves around their sense of reliability. I mean, if you go for a hamburger at a fast food place, you're probably going to get basically the same thing. But mm-hmm. each company has its own kind of angle and its own sort of uh, um, uh, the image that it's projecting. And this is it's when it gets down to marketing, right? Um, it I, I guess at the end of the day, stores, even if they're in the same sector, they sell different products. They sell mm-hmm. different Whereas this, to me, is just, it's going to be all the same. It's like walking into a, you know, like, what different what difference would it make if there was no more beer store, but there was just private outlets, but they all sold the same product at the same price? The only thing that's really different is the decor inside the store. Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, that's, one could say that about a lot of things. You know, go to a grocery store, it's the same thing. Why do you go to different places? Um, yeah, so at this point, it's beyond my... <laughs> I don't know. See, I don't know I don't know if I agree with that example, Dan, because, yeah. again, you go to some grocery stores, sure, you're going to get soup, but you may get this kind of soup, you yeah. may get that kind of soup, or what have you, whereas, you know, you go to the grocery store, you're going to get Labatt Blue, you go to the, to the beer store, yeah. you're going to get Labatt yeah. Blue. Yeah, that's right, and... Yeah, so we'll have to see how they... Because once you start bringing in different product lines that not all carry, then you're going to bring in different price structures. And Mm -hmm. and, and my guess is they're going, just like they do with alcohol, they're going to have a minimum price uh, as what you can charge. There'll be things like, uh, do you have a sale? Are you allowed to have sales? Because they don't really do that in the in the liquor store as well, right? Yeah, no, you're right. And and it may be that they're not allowed to sell, like they have discounts on the, the... cannabis product. I yeah. don't know what other stuff they can sell. Yeah. But um, yeah, it, it's, it's a really good question. Uh, I think that there will be relative uh, differentiation among companies uh, yeah. as far as the look and the and the sort of reputation they'll nurture. But as far as the products go, they may, I mean, some might just choose to sell a higher line of, of, of product, right? Yeah. I mean, we see this with say, places that are wine stores. I mm-hmm. know in BC, different parts of Vancouver, for example, the wine stores are high-end wine stores or high-end whiskey stores and high-end sure. craft liquors, craft beer stores, right? So, so we may see that same thing. Uh, given the number of stores that one licensee can have, it, they may be able to build their brand in that way. Dan Malik has been with us, health sciences professor, Brock University. According to an Ipsos poll, even though cannabis is legal, a third of Canadians still using illegal dealers to get it. Dan, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. All right, Scott. Cheers. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about all this stuff, pressures of life, holidays, whatever presents itself. Have you ever thought, I just want to bail. I just want out. I just want, I, I just want to, to get away from it for a while. Recharge. Let off some steam. Would you ever take a life sabbatical? We just talked to uh, a family, and I think they would have left by now. Yeah, they were leaving the beginning of November. And uh, this was a family from Alberta 
young family, kids, I don't know, under 12, I'm thinking. They were, what, 8, 10, somewhere in there. Uh, two kids. And uh, I guess he had spent a lot of time working up in the oil industry in Alberta. It was time for a change anyway. So they decided before they sell in the middle of nowhere and then come back down to the city, I think they were moving back to Edmonton or what have you, uh, they thought, well, we're going to go see some stuff. So they sold it all. Apparently they planned for it. It's not like you just do it and <laughs> then when you get back, you know, uh, you're in difficulty. I mean, you have to plan for it. But, yeah, we're going to take, I think it was 10 months, to go around and travel the world. They had it all planned out, going through this part, that part, all the way across. Asia, Europe, all of it. And I've I've often admired these people. How do you do this? How do you all of a sudden just, you know, it's like you're in this rat race, and and all of a sudden you're going to get off the wheel for a while. Well, the wheel's going to roll away without me. Then i got to play catch-up. Do we care about this stuff anymore? Uh, What would it take for you to just say, I'm out? Life sabbatical. Let's bring in Corby Fine, Vice President, Simply Financial. They did a cool report on all of this stuff and saying that, you know, up to two-thirds are thinking about it. I'd say it's more than two-thirds that are thinking about it, but how many actually do it? Uh, Corby is on the line now. Corby, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, thanks for having me. Two-thirds say they're thinking about it. How many actually do it? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, The number that do it, you know, self-admittedly, hard to say, but what's really interesting is that a quarter of the people that say that they're thinking about it are actually saving money. They're, they're, they're taking the first steps to allow that. So I think you, you just said something interesting before. You said the key is to plan for it. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of people planning for it right now. It seems like it's sort of an irresponsible thing to do. You know, we've been taught, we start, we go to school, we, we, we become something. Then we jump into the workforce and, and we continue to generate revenue until we can buy a home and raise a family. And, and it seems almost like irresponsible to walk away from all of that. But the key is to make sure you're covered when you do this. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing. When we talk about Canadians, um, you know, we all, we all dream about living our passions, experiencing new things. The Simply Financial poll, you know, found that um, often it's about refocusing. Uh, it's about investing in yourself more so than taking a time out. It's actually about a time in. And so um, we think that if you look at it from an investment perspective, just like you would look for high-interest uh, accounts to, to save your money, uh, removing fees from your, your daily lives, uh, it's actually been investing in yourself. And that's a really interesting twist on the story. So it's sort of like planning for your retirement early. Yeah, but enjoying the things along the way. So um, what's really interesting when, when people talk about and Canadians talk about what it means to, to have this life sabbatical, uh, it's not just about, to your point, getting off the wheel of the rat race. Um, often it's, it's going back to school, uh, reinventing yourself. Often it's travel, and sometimes it's, uh, it's even working abroad. So the definition, I think, is a little broader uh, mm. from a Canadian's perspective, and each one of those obviously has a different requirement in terms of the plan to get there. Why are we thinking this way now? What has changed, or have we always been this way? Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting one. Um, it's not just about buying houses and, and owning cars anymore. Uh, there's definitely this transition to valuing experiences over stuff. Um, and what's really interesting is it's, it's not just millennials. Uh, it's everyone. 
Uh, millennials have a higher percentage uh, that seem to be interested, but at the end of the day, uh, it, it's it's pretty pervasive. In fact, uh, uh, you know, uh, yeah, about 10 or 15 percent increase when you hit the millennial segment. But uh, this is hitting all Canadians, older and older Canadians included. When it comes to millennials, is it a choice or is it just a reality? Because that's the world they're living in. They they just they've got lots of debt and just can't afford what generations previous could. Yeah, it's it's an interesting um, notion to think that millennials have more debt, um, and, and not necessarily proven. Um, we're seeing that millennials are absolutely interested in the long term. The difference is how they get there. And so it's about enjoying the experiences of life. It's taking that extra trip. It's not feeling the same pressures that existed maybe for their parents' generation. Uh, nobody's expecting someone to go into a job and be there for 50 years, you know, maybe they, they, the way they did 50 years ago. So uh, it's definitely a, uh, an overall change in, in just the belief system and the value structure. Do you have to be rich to do something like this? <laughs> It's a great question. Uh, no, uh, because as most of us, uh, I'm not rich, and, and it's something I think about. Um, you know, when we think about how you get there, there's a lot of things that, that the average Canadian can do to start the process. And when we think about 25% of them are already saving, it's not always about putting money in an account, but simplifying your expenses, you know, sharing costs of services with other people, roommates, friends, family, uh, and often just, just taking advantage of the everyday ways to earn cash back. So make sure you've got you know, a cash back dividend credit card that has no fees. Make sure you're finding a bank uh, financial partner that doesn't cost you anything. There's no fees to do your day-to-day banking. Remove, you know, remove the complexity and the decisions from how you're going on a day-to-day. And also, don't forget, make sure you maximize the interest on your savings. How, what can old people learn from millennials on this? Huh. Well, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I'm old or young or where I sit down the street in the middle, but um, uh, personally, and I think from what we're seeing from Canadians, it's really about enjoying life. You know, um, what are all the things you can stop worrying about uh, that you can actually free up that time to enjoy the experiences life has to offer? So whether it is on a, going on travel uh, adventures, whether it's going back to school, whatever your personal passion is, uh, don't be afraid to do the things to get there and find ways to simplify your life, simplify your spending, simplify your uh, need to worry about things in order to uh, make it a reality. A uh, website where we can find all of this uh, survey, Corby? Uh, well, you can come to uh, simply.com, that's double I, and uh, S-I-M-P-L-I-I dot com. That is our, uh, our lovely homepage. And uh, we will make sure that we've got links to all of it from there. Corby Fine, Vice President, Simply Financial. Corby, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks. Have a great day. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.